Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, I think, crazy and crazy martinis today. There's definitely a severe dose of bad in those as well. Jim, let's dive right into our good martini. The cleaning crew at the Ecuadorian embassy can finally get to work on Julian Assange's room because after, what is it, six or seven years now, he's finally out of there, dragged out of there today, frog-marched, as Joe Wilson from Valerie Plame fame would uh, say. He's now being extradited or in the process of being extradited eventually and hopefully to the United States. Daily Mail, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy and is facing up to 12 months in a British prison after he was found guilty of skipping bail to avoid being extradited to Sweden in 2012 to face allegations of rape and sexual assault. Ecuador has also decided to revoke his diplomatic asylum and therefore British police dragged him away in handcuffs to face charges relating to the bail conditions he defied seven years ago. But in a sensational turn of events, he was also charged by the U.S. government with conspiring with American whistleblower Chelsea Manning to break a password to a classified government computer in 2010. According to documents unsealed today, the charge relates to Assange's alleged role in one of the largest compromises of classified information in U.S. history, and he faces a maximum jail term of five years. While he awaits sentencing for defying his bail conditions, he also faces a court hearing on May 2nd related to his possible extradition to the U.S. to contest the computer hacking charges here. So, Jim, Julian Assange has become uh, a little bit of a political Rorschach test here because, of course, you and I despise him all the way back to the Iraq war when he was involved with Manning and others, I assume, uh, to publicize classified information that clearly put the lives of U.S. troops in danger, not to mention potentially compromising missions that we were involved with. Uh, now, of course, uh, more recently, he's known for publishing hacked emails and, and DNC emails and that sort of thing. And so some people see this as a big blow against Trump. But the, the case that's being prosecuted here is all related back to the Bradley slash Chelsea Manning situation. So what do you make of Julian Assange finally facing the music? It is a good, good day, Greg, not just because the first two martinis we have here, a long-delayed day. I think many people would argue that uh, Julian Assange needed to be seeing the inside of a courtroom well before this. I had joked about, you know, he thought your house guests were bad, and, you know, that Assange had stayed there for, for seven years. Kind of disturbing how Julian Assange could manage to sell himself as some sort of uh, internet folk hero. He was some sort of noble crusader for open government or something like that, entirely dependent upon uh, whose secrets he was revealing at any given moment. Now, it's worth noting, you and I have talked about the Snowden revelations for a long time. You can have problems with government secrecy. You can argue that this, the American government considers way too much information, classified information that doesn't need to be. You can be very disturbed by what the NSA is doing in terms of the data it collects over U.S. citizens without a warrant and all that stuff. All of these are fair, legitimate conversations to have. But what Manning did and what Julian Assange did did not make things better. And I don't think you can say, oh, you know, let's take the entirety, as many diplomatic cables as we possibly can, and put them out there for the world to see. And we're not going to care if this ends up revealing the names of informants in Afghanistan who will then be targeted for death by the Taliban, right? There's a moral consequence to Julian Assange's actions. 
Um, and there was kind of this tone of an angry teenager. There was this um, dorm room late night BS session philosophy that no secrets should exist. Um, and else, by the way, it's worth noting, you look back on the stuff that he used to reveal. Um, it was Turkish information, which he basically revealed da- voter data for like basically every woman in Turkey. Um, uh, it was a whole bunch of people who were not high, powerful, uh, connected to the national security apparatus, connected to the heights of government, ended up having their personal information uh, exposed out to the world through WikiLeaks. Um, a whole bunch of, if you went through the John Podesta emails, you knew a bunch of them were, honey, you don't forget to pick up milk on the way home from work today. You know, just mundane things that, uh, you know, that, that Assange and his crew did not mind showing out to everybody. Now, uh, you know, if you believe in a right to privacy, Julian Assange is a serial killer, right? This, this is a guy who basically does not care what he puts out there. He does not believe that you have any right. Or if you happen to be somebody who just emailed John Podesta, hey, can I borrow your, you know, your, your, your weed whacker <laughs> this weekend? And you had an email. Your email was going to get leaked out there because Julian Assange did not care. He was not a journalist. Do not fool yourself into believing that he was engaged in some sort of legitimate news gathering. The second thing, which I think was always a very big issue for you and I, Greg, if he had been an equal opportunity offender, so to speak, and if he had you know, managed to reveal a whole lot of embarrassing information to the Russian government, to the Chinese government, to the Iranian government, Greg, I think it's safe to say you and I might have had a, a, a much more complicated view of him. Might have felt a little more warm and fuzzy if he was creating as many headaches for the world's despotic regimes. But if you listen to Julian Assange, he never got that bothered by Vladimir Putin. He never got that bothered by any of the world's more tyrannical regimes. In his mind, the great evil of this world could be found in Washington, D.C., and in the Pentagon, and in Foggy Bottom, and sometimes in European capitals. That was what really bothered him. He never really got that upset by those groups. So, Look, from where I sit, it was always clear whose side Julian Assange was on. He was on the other side, and he did not care who got hurt in the process. Um, This is a long overdue uh, date with destiny, you could say, date with uh, the justice system. Um, You know, sometimes karma takes the wrong bus and gets delayed, Greg, but it usually ends up eventually where it's supposed to be. You know what made me feel pretty good today, Jim? I was shocked to find out that Julian Assange is only 47 years old. And if you watch the uh, the arrest uh, footage today, <laughs> like, man, I'm feeling pretty good about myself and how I look. Pop that- quiz, America. Who looks younger, Julian Assange or Mitt Romney? <laughs> That's a testament to clean living and the aging effects of evil. All right. Here's another story. Involving our legal system. As Jim said uh, the other day, or the other week, I guess it was, when uh, the Avenatti story broke and the Jesse Smollett story broke, pace yourself, legal system, pace yourself. But uh, we're getting a lot of news today. This is kind of a follow-up on what we learned about Avenatti a couple of weeks ago. This is from CNBC. Celebrity lawyer Michael Avenatti was slammed Thursday with a 36-count indictment by a federal grand jury in Los Angeles that accuses him of ripping off clients, including a mentally ill paraplegic, tax crimes, wire fraud, bank fraud, and perjury. The indictment comes more than two weeks after federal prosecutors in L.A. and New York hit Avenatti with separate criminal complaints. In the case of New York, Avenatti is accused of trying to extort up to $25 million from athletic shoe giant Nike by threatening to expose alleged bribery of amateur basketball players and their families unless the company coughed up cash to Avenatti and a client. The new 61-page Los Angeles indictment alleges that Avenatti, for years, 
hid and then completely spent a $4 million legal settlement obtained in January 2015 in favor of a mentally ill paraplegic client and hid a $2.75 million settlement for another client that Avenatti allegedly used to help pay for the purchase of a private jet, which is no longer in his possession, I believe, as of today. So, Jim, uh, none of this comes as a huge surprise to you and me. Uh, We could tell from the outset that this was an odious character who was looking for any opportunity to get famous and get rich. We saw his uh, aggressive nature blow up in his face and that of the Democrats uh, with his very suspect clients in the Brett Kavanaugh situation. But uh, for those who hate President Trump, this is a guy that they never had any red flags over at all. In fact, it was just the other day uh, when this story first broke that you had uh, Chris Saliza over at uh, CNN saying, well, he only succeeded in this circus-like political environment in which we all find ourselves because of Trump. And then you also had Brian Stelter, who on Reliable Sources— again, reliable sources, had Avenatti as a guest said this towards the end of one of their conversations. I agree with you. I don't know if it's a good thing that star power and TV uh, savvy is required for the job, but I think it is. And and by the way, I think President Obama also had a lot of TV star power, and that helped him pre-Trump. But Trump is more evidence of this. And looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. That clip is going to live forever. Jim, what do you make of this 36-count complaint against Avenatti? Greg, I want to speak on behalf of all Americans who up until mm, not that long ago had never heard of Michael Avenatti, never cared to know about Michael Avenatti, but they turned on their television, perhaps they clicked through cable news, and suddenly the guy was on all the time. And it was all related to the Stormy Daniels lawsuit, which is, let's face it, out of the long and tawdry and hideous you know, history of Donald Trump. Come on, this doesn't even crack the top 10 worst things he's ever done, right? This was not a crime against the state. This was not a crime against the people. This was, you know, embarrassing payments to hide up an adulterous affair, which I know Trump still insists never happened. Uh, And they was, you know, sending the money through Cohen. Yeah, you can make the argument that it was sort of a de facto campaign expenditure that wasn't really listed on the FEC forms, I love people who can make that complaint, Greg, like there's a separate FEC form for, you know, secret payments to your mistress. Although maybe they should have that, you know. Oh, you do that? Oh, you're going to need, you know, EZ-493 for that that type of circumstance. You get that one. Um, But Avenatti was suddenly everywhere. And he was on, I think somebody did the study and they said he was on like 57 times in a two-month period on CNN. So earlier today... Uh, it was you know, Jessica Taylor, who's a reporter for NPR. And I don't think NPR was particularly bad about this. Where she said, hey, remember when Avenatti was going to run for president? And Ben Dominic, who runs The Federalist and does a easily one of the two or three best morning newsletters out there. Um, you know, not the best, but, you know, down there. Um, <laughs> and he said, you know, remember when CNN and MSNBC and ABC had Michael Avenatti on constantly? That was so funny and cute. And, he, and here's the point he really gets to. We should be underlining whenever you hear this. Ha, boy, look at Avenatti tone from any of these media institutions in the coming days. Yes, everyone was so equally charmed and amused about how everyone is equally wrong about Avenatti together and totally not at fault about being so anymore. We were all equally wrong about that guy. And it definitely wasn't an intentional decision by three major networks to promote the hell, to promote the hell out of a crazed lying grifter. Um, and he makes the point is that, you know, almost everybody looked at, you know, Avenatti, listened to him for about 10 seconds and could tell, aha, this is an obvious sleazebag. This guy is a, you know, ambu- the, the stereotype of an ambulance chaser. 
And so, no, no, we, we, we did not all take him seriously together. We did not all have the same reaction to Brian Stelter. Um, and it was very early on the idea, it was, the fact you know, that uh, he apparently, you know, went in this, this kind of gung-ho, uh, long-shot suing of President Trump that he ended up losing and ended up having to pay attorney's fees. He ended up costing Stormy Daniels uh, money because of that lawsuit. Then later on, apparently he was raising money. Apparently he jumped on the bandwagon to do fundraising and donations to his super PAC. He was going to give some small portion to the likes of Beto O'Rourke and things like that. Time magazine did an article that really took him seriously and said, you know, is America ready for President Michael Avenatti? Um, the Iowa Democrats invited him to come speak. The New Hampshire Democrats invited him. Not all of us took Michael Avenatti seriously and said, oh, this, is, this guy could have what it takes to be the leader of the country. Certain groups did, and they should go in the corner and hang their heads in shame for another 24 hours over this. Um, so I, I think anybody who took Avenatti seriously, who touted him, who acted like he was some sort of, you know, swell guy, um, you know, Colbert inviting him on, The View, all these folks, they deserve a lot more grief than they're getting this morning, and hopefully they get it. So uh, that's the bad aspect of what I think is otherwise very good news. And uh, we may reach the point soon where, you know, Avenatti does not get, uh, we don't hear from Michael Avenatti for a long, long time. It's a cautionary tale, too. I mean, uh, a guy as sleazy as him getting what he deserves, or most likely, uh, is sat- certainly satisfying on a number of levels. But uh, what a case study against the undying pursuit of fame and fortune, this guy. I don't know if he ever had an ethical code to him, but he obviously lost it a long time ago. I think he thought he made it all worth it by getting the, the fame that he had, and obviously it's crashing down on him. So uh, just an unbelievable story. Greg, there's a common thread tying our first two martinis together, and that is both, uh, you know, Assange and Avenatti, besides the fact that both names start with A, um, were two guys who were defined by who, by who their perceived enemies were. And when Assange was revealing the secrets of the Pentagon, a whole bunch of folks on the left side of the political spectrum saw him as some sort of, you know, libertarian hero or civil libertarian or some sort of muckraker who was exposing wrongdoing or something. Then Assange gets involved and WikiLeaks posts the DNC emails and John Podesta's emails. And remember, Sean Hannity had him on. Sean Hannity, who had denounced him a few years earlier as a traitor, all of a sudden was like, well, you know, you can come on the program anytime you like. You know, uh, you know he did a complete 180 on him, right? Michael Avenatti, you know, because he was suing Trump, suddenly became this heroic figure you know, in the eyes of a whole bunch of people who should have known better. And that is, that is a wrong philosophy. The enemy of your enemy is not always your friend. And what's more, you should not evaluate people simply by who are they irking today. You're much better off if you look at the whole picture. And that way you end up, you know, not being in situations where all of a sudden, as I understand it this morning, you know, Sean Hannity's deleting all of his old tweets about <laughs> Julian Assange. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, Brian Stelzer wishes he could take back his, uh, rather unctuous and, and grating praise he offered for, for Avenatti. Yeah, I'm sure he'd like to, but uh, we're going to keep that one. All right, let's move on to our final martini. Definitely crazy, kind of depressing. We talked earlier in the week, Jim, about new polling showing that while Virginians have definitely soured on Governor Ralph Northam, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, and Attorney General Mark uh, Herring to some extent, although he's not nearly in as rough shape approval-wise as the other two, uh, voters do not want any of them to be removed from office. It's pretty close with Fairfax, fairly decisive on the other two, especially Herring. But um, there's a far cry between we don't think this rises to the uh, level of being removed from office to 
I'm so sorry we were hard on you, which is what now state Democrats are doing, at least a few of them. You reported on this in the NRO corner on Wednesday, quote, this is from Inside Nova, Nova slang for Northern Virginia for those who aren't local. There were a lot of life lessons learned from the wreckage in Richmond, said State Senator Janet Howell, Democrat, of course, chief among them. Don't rush to judgment. I'm sorry we did, said Howell, who also pilloried national Democratic leaders and presidential candidates for weighing in early and sometimes loudly on the Virginia situation. Ignore them, Howell advised. State Senator Barbara Favola, also a Democrat, of course, who was among those to call for resignations, only later to backtrack, acknowledged legislators were caught up in a media firestorm. Quote, statements were made before people even talked to the governor, said Favola, who long has been an ally of Northam. And Jim, you sum this up perfectly, because that's what Virginia really needed as the cherry on top to this elaborate ice cream sundae of embarrassment, an apology to Northam. Jim, what was misunderstood here? This guy has explained nothing. Yeah. You wish you could sit down with these Democratic state lawmakers. And, and I can't tell if it's Stockholm syndrome. I can't tell if like they're, they're like, you know, some sort of battered spouse who is now making excuses for the person who's making who's doing the bad things. Um, but they really seem to think like, you know, like I'd love to ask them what changed. Other than your perception of the political consequences, right? <laughs> what changed? And the you know because it, again, it's not like we've had a fuller explanation of this. It's not you know it's like if the entire staff of the yearbook suddenly comes forward and says, "Oh yeah, that was supposed to be on the page of Irving Schmidlap," to use my favorite you know made up name of a uh, of you know Joe Schmo. Um, that Joe Schmo was a notorious racist. Joe Schmo was a terrible person. Uh, it wasn't Ralph Northam. Then you know what, Greg? I think you and I would say, wow, we really do owe Ralph Northam an apology. We'd still wonder how he got the nickname Coon Man. Uh, but if that scenario really came to pass, we would you know, then feel some, some regret over all the things we've said about Ralph Northam in the past two months. However, my suspicion is that Ralph Northam is one of the two people in that photo. And the reason I think that is because when it first broke, he said he was <laughs> in his apology. And the following morning, he said, oh, wait, no, I just remembered it wasn't me in the photo. Uh, an explanation that's really strained credulity. Um, and so it's one of those things. Where I'd, I'd love to ask these Democratic lawmakers, do you, do you now believe his denial and you didn't at first? If, if you, you know, what changed? Would you, you know, when did you, you, you used to think this, this absolutely positively had to, you know, warranted resignation. Now, presumably you don't. What changed other than polling showed that people were not eager for him to go? I thought this was the sort of thing that was unacceptable in a governor. Then I saw polling numbers and I decided that it was. That's a terrible way to look at this issue. Either it's right or it's wrong, right? Either, either there should be consequence or there shouldn't. And for me, the issue was less what did Ralph Northam do back when he was 25? It was this nonsensical story of, oh, I don't know how this possibly could have happened. And, oh, the only time I ever did it was shoe polish in a, in a moonwalking, con- you know, in the dance contest. When you lie to me like, like that, either it means that you're stupid or you think I'm stupid. And because I'm pretty sure I'm not stupid, or at least not that stupid, <laughs> I think Ralph Northam is stupid. And that's why he should go, in addition to the fact that because this utterly implausible explanation uh, embarrassed the state and, you know, he shook people's faith in his ability. And for good reason, many people were deeply offended at the thought that they had a governor who spent the mid-20s running around in a clan outfit and basically, you know, thought it was a funny thing to do or something like that. Um, it's the same philosophy in which Democratic state lawmakers are basically saying, we believe that Justin Fairfax should resign, but we do not believe the state should hold hearings on the issue. 
wait, wait a second. You know, so you've called for a consequence that we know isn't going to happen. Justin Fairfax has made very clear he's not going to resign. So now the question is, what happens? We have two, you know, two women who are claimed they were assaulted, who, you know, I think deserve to be publicly heard. They've done their, their interviews with CBS this morning. I think the state should do something, you know, but the state Democrats have decided, well, we don't want to do that. But we do think this is worthy of resign, but he's not going to. So the, res- the call for resignation, Greg, basically amounts to you must go unless you don't want to. <laughs> well, I think you and I nailed it the second the Herring story came out, as salacious and unbelievable as it was, given the other accusations that had piled up in the few days before that. Once they were all tainted, nobody was yep. going to leave. Yeah, it was... Uh... I'd use the term Mexican standoff, but I'm sure someone would be offended by that. We need some other good saying for a you know, pr- prisoner's dilemma... Whatever metaphor you want to use there for a bunch of people who are pretty much stuck together and share the same fate and can't escape each other uh, and can't have consequences to one without the consequences being suffered by all. That was inevitably going to cause, you know, look, Virginia Democrats have made clear what they think the, what is absolutely unacceptable for the state. And it's not blackface and it's not allegations of sexual assault. It's a Republican governor. Yes, that's the one thing they simply can't tolerate. You can smile about Julian Assange being in handcuffs and uh, Michael Avenatti not uh, having a private plane anymore. So uh, talk to you tomorrow. Uh, at least it's Friday, Greg. Almost. Just one more day <laughs> and then you're on spring it's break. It's a funnier joke on Mondays. <laughs> yes, it is. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>